Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. Father, we thank you for who you are and what you are to us. Thank you for your Word. Thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit who indwells us, who molds us into the image of Jesus and who empowers us for the work of the ministry and to be effective witnesses. So we pray, Father, once again, to sense your presence. We pray that you would meet each and every need in this building and those who are watching online. We pray, Father, for anyone, if they have not made a decision for Jesus that, Lord, you would draw them to you, Lord, that that you would convict them of sin, remove spiritual blinders. And and you're so faithful, Lord, in doing your part. We thank you for that. And I do pray for the gift of teaching. Help me, Lord, to rightly divide your word of truth. I pray for a fresh filling of your spirit. I pray, Lord, that once again, all of our hearts will be open and receptive to what you desire to do in us, through us, and for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, Tonight, we're we're going to go over Jesus and the written word. And so we went over the series all about Jesus. So those were a few studies. And uh, we just talked about the person and works of Christ. It it was a branch of um, theology called Christology. Just once again, just all about Jesus. Um, And then we um, got into a little bit of... um, Bibliology, which you would call pretty much we just study the, the, the nature of the Bible, the character of the Bible. And so we had a few studies uh, surrounding uh, the Bible itself. We focus on the Old Testament first and then the New Testament, just showing uh, that the Old Testament and the New Testament, which form the Bible that we have here in our laps or here on the podium, uh, we, we showed that they are reliable. And it's proven throughout the years that the scriptures are reliable. We even went over what, uh, how do we know what belongs in the Bible, what doesn't, what criteria was used and so forth. So we covered all of that. And so we want to bring uh, those two series together, uh, bring this to a close. And, and then, like I said, in a couple of weeks, we get into the book of Genesis. And so this is entitled Jesus and the Written Word. Jesus and the written word. So you're going to see some connections here between the living word, Jesus Christ. He's the logos. If you look at uh, the word word in Greek, he's the logos. And then you have the written word, uh, the Bible, the scriptures. And so in regard to the Bible, it was written by 40 different writers and they were separated by geography, time, politics, culture. Their jobs were all different. They had different social standings. Their language uh, was even uh, different. And so they were separated by, by all of these things. And yet in the scripture, you have one code of ethics and you have one main or central message and one plan of salvation that you see throughout the scripture. And, and it builds up throughout the scriptures from Genesis. And so we'll get into that. Matter of fact, um, and we'll see this in the book of Genesis as we get into our studies, you'll see the first prophecy about Jesus way early on in Genesis chapter three. Already it it starts. And so 
Um, you know, I'm excited about that study. I'm not taking it lightly, a lot to get into. So once again, please pray about that. But it, there is one message of salvation and, and this unity in the Bible is possible only because of the divine author. Only because God is the author of the Bible. That's why I can have this unity, although many of the people didn't even know each other. I mean, Daniel and Paul, they, they never met. But yet there's this one message. Daniel and, and John, the apostle, never met. John, the apostle, was used by God to write Revelation. But yet and still, you can look at Revelation and look at Daniel Look at the book of Daniel and you see that they go together. And so I'd encourage you. And this is just as an example. If you want to get into the book of Revelation, want to start studying and start with the book of Daniel. They go together. One message. Why? Once again, God is the author. And then there's one person who's the main focus of the 66 books. And the main person is Jesus So to sum it all up, the Bible is all about Jesus and it's about God's redemptive plan for mankind. And so we're going to start with an overview of the portrayal of Jesus in both the Old and New Testaments. You see, in the Old Testament, Jesus is veiled. In other words, he is shown or portrayed implicitly. In other words, it's he is implied or he, he's understood, although he's not directly expressed. But, but the implication of Jesus is there. So it's a veiled revelation of the Christ. And there's something in the Old Testament that we call a type. And so we see these typologies of Jesus in the Old Testament and a type You may have heard that word before. It's a special kind of symbolism. It's a representation of something that is yet future. And so the word type, just to give another uh, definition, is generally used to denote a resemblance between something present and something future. And so the fulfillment or that future thing that is represented in the type, you would call that the antitype. And so you usually see the antitype in the New Testament. It is the fulfillment or completion of an earlier truth revealed in the Bible. So you see these types of Christ in the Old Testament. And so Jesus in the New Testament, because he becomes the antitype. In other words, the fulfillment of the types that were pictured in the Old Testament. For example, here's a type. There was this, I call it an almost sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham. And so you have this picture of this father who is about to sacrifice his son. And so that incident is a type or picture of what would truly happen, as we see in the New Testament, that God the Father poured his wrath upon God the Son, Jesus Christ. So God the Father went through with it, but he stopped Abraham in the middle of it. But yet you see the type of what was to come. And then you look at a person As another example, and that person is Joseph. He would be a type of Christ or representation of Christ. For example, the first time, the first time the his brothers met with him 
while he was in Egypt. That first time they didn't recognize him. But the second time his brothers recognized him. And and that's a type of Christ because the first time Jesus came, the Jews did not recognize him as the Messiah. But 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 when he comes back, they're going to be ready to receive him. And Jesus even said uh, before he was crucified that you're not going to see me again speaking to the Jews until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so at the end of the seven year tribulation period, they're going to be ready to receive Jesus as their Messiah. And so you see these different types in the Old Testament. And once again, that's going back to the fact that Jesus is veiled or portrayed implicitly in the Old Testament. And so in the Old Testament, Christ is a shadow. He's in shadow form. And you can see it in the festivals. You can see it in the rituals like the sacrifices and things like that. So these pictures of Christ in shadow form in the Old Testament. The Old Testament even uh, presents um, Jesus as Savior, a, a picture of it, a shadow form of it. Because remember in Exodus chapter three, as as God presented himself to Moses because he wanted Moses to be the human leader that, that he would use to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. Remember, God, God revealed himself as I am. I, I've come down to deliver my people. All that was pointing forward to Jesus Christ, who will be a spiritual deliverer for all mankind. And he revealed himself, by the way, in John chapter eight, I believe it's verse 58. He revealed himself as I am. And so he is in shadow form and type. He's he's portrayed implicitly in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, Jesus is portrayed explicitly. He's portrayed explicitly. And so the New Testament has the truth of Christ. It's very evident. He's not in shadow form. In fact, Colossians chapter two, verses 16 and 17 says this. It says, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. Why? Because these things were a shadow of things to come. But the substance or the reality is of Christ. And so there was I've had somebody come here and, and they stepped in the office and they tried to chide us as a church because we were meeting on Sundays. They came in there and, and I don't know what I can't remember what they came in there for, but they came in there to. Pretty much point fingers at us. You, you guys are meeting on the wrong day. But if they would read the scriptures, they would see that the Sabbath day, for example, is just a shadow of Christ, who is the reality. And so there's nothing wrong with taking a day of rest. But, to, you know, just to put that burden on somebody like, oh, if you don't keep this, you're not really worshiping God. I mean, what day is not a good day to worship God? That doesn't make any sense to me. Every day is a good day to wait. If we want to worship them on Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Wednesday morning, it doesn't doesn't matter. Long as God is getting the glory. And so in the New Testament, you see the antitype, the the substance, Christ. He is our Sabbath. Why? Because he says he is our rest. So if you're in Jesus, you are enjoying the Sabbath. Because spiritually, you're resting in him. 
But again, that's not to say that a day of rest is not good. So I'm not saying that. And so in the New Testament, he is portrayed explicitly. In the Old Testament, Jesus is the seed. In the New Testament, he is full blown. For example, John 1.14 says, we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father. So he's not in seed form anymore in the New Testament. He's full blown. In the Old Testament, Jesus is enfolded. Uh, and in the New Testament, Jesus is unfolded. In the Old Testament, Jesus is contained. In the New Testament, Jesus is explained. In the Old Testament, Jesus is coming. The Messiah is coming. But in the New Testament, the Messiah has arrived. In the Old Testament, Jesus is pre-incarnate. That means he doesn't have his body yet. But in the New Testament, he is incarnate. See, at a certain point of history, he took upon that human body, but he always existed. That's why we say he's fully God, fully man, or some would say truly God, truly man. And then when it comes to the Bible, when you look at all the eight sections of Scripture, of how you can divide it, uh, there is this thematic structure that adds to or contributes to the overall message of Jesus. Each and every one of the eight parts of the Bible contributes to the overall message of Jesus. So, so just to start off, just want to let you know that the Hebrew Old Testament was divided into three sections. It was divided into the law or, or you would say Torah. It was divided into the prophets and also the Psalms also called the writings. And so there's three sections in the Hebrew Bible. But then today we have um, this fourfold division of the Old Testament, and that came through the Septuagint. And the Septuagint, once again, um, is is the um, Greek Old Testament. It was translated from the original language of Hebrew in Alexandria, Egypt, between 250 B.C. and 150 B.C. And it's called the Septuagint um, because it's, it's hinting at the 70 scholars who helped translate it from the Old Testament Hebrew uh, to Greek. And so it's the Greek Old Testament. And it's actually the, the version that Jesus quoted from and also a lot of the apostles in their writing, the, the, the Septuagint or that uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so that four division Old Testament, that was carried over into the Latin and the English Bibles. So that's why in our English Bibles, we have these four divisions in the Old Testament. And we're going to go over what they are and how they carry forward the message of Jesus. And so we're going to start with the overall message of Jesus in the first four sections of the Bible. Just starting with the Old Testament. So in the first section of the Bible or of the Old Testament, you have what is called the law. So that's the first section. You have the law. And so that would be Genesis through Deuteronomy. And so in the law, in that first section, there is a downward motion. And so in other words, you have God coming down into human history and time. And so God is taking a step downward to man in order to select the people. 
in order to redeem a nation, in order to plant Israel and to call that nation to himself and to give them his law. And so, again, that's Genesis through Deuteronomy in that first section of the Bible called the law. And so the emphasis is the, the, the moral life of Israel. And the thing about the law is that it lays the foundation for Christ. It lays the foundation for Christ. Still talking about that first part. And so the foundation of Christ is laid in three ways in regard to the law. So the law does this in three ways. Uh, first of all, historically or ethnically. And so we see this nation called out and is preparing for Jesus who will be born a Jew. And so before that can be happened, this na- before that can happen, the nation had to be called out. And so the law is laying the foundation for that. But a second way the foundation for Christ was laid in the law was theologically. And it points to the principles of the Christian life. For example, Genesis is a picture of his call to us. Exodus is a picture of God redeeming us. Leviticus is a picture of God sanctifying us or setting us apart for his purposes. And currently, as believers, we are sanctified after salvation. That, that's your position. You have a position of sanctification. You have a position of holiness. You have that position called uh, justification. That means you have been declared righteous once and for all. And then you go through that part of sanctification, with, which we're in now. It's a, it's a process of when we should be becoming more like Christ and less like the old us. And the book of Numbers is a picture of him setting us apart and guiding us And Deuteronomy is a picture of God instructing us, just like God through Moses instructed the children of Israel in Deuteronomy. And so uh, the foundation for Christ was laid that second way theologically. And then the foundation for Christ in the law in that first section of the Bible was also um, that foundation was also laid soteriologically. That means soteriology is pretty much the study of the doctrines of salvation. And so what we see here in the law, in that first part of the Bible, the first part of the Old Testament called the law, we we see some foundations that refer to salvation. And so that is that downward motion, God coming down, preparing that, that, um, that nation for the coming Messiah and all these things. And so in the second section, which is historical, the historical section of the Old Testament, you have Joshua through Esther. And so you see here an outward motion because God is now, he's getting the holy people into the holy land. So now there's there's this outward motion. And so this section talks about the national life of Israel. And so you see this expansion and you see these conquests here and this outward motion. And it's making, once again, preparation for Christ. So he's getting people settled in the land because that's the land the Messiah will be born in. He will be born in Bethlehem in Israel. But then there's a third section. And that third section is the poetical section. And so this one has... And 
and upward motion. And it teaches us how to praise God and how to pray to God. And so this part refers to the spiritual life of Israel. It speaks to the language of the soul. It wants people to communicate from the heart, communicate to God from our hearts. And so that's what we see in this third section, this poetical section, Job through the Song of Solomon. And so this poetic, these poetical books, it show the aspiration for Christ. That means we, we desire him strongly. We're, we're worshiping him. And so, and so we see that in this third section of the Old Testament, people wanting to know God. And then the fourth section, this is the prophetical section of the Old Testament from Isaiah to Malachi. And this has a forward motion. And so all of these uh, prophets, they expected the Christ. They expected the Messiah. They were looking forward to him in these prophecies. So we see here the expectation of Israel. And again, they're looking forward. They were looking for Jesus. They're coming king. And so we're going to continue the overall message of Jesus in the next four sections of the Bible. And you're going to notice it's going to mirror the Old Testament. And so in the New Testament, you have. If you keep it up, this will be overall in the Bible, section number five. You have the Gospels. The Gospels will be the historical. I'm sorry, it, it will have the uh, downward motion. And so it presents the incarnated Christ. And so here you have the downward motion. You have Christ coming from heaven to earth. And so this is the historic manifestation of Christ. And then the book of Acts in the sixth section that that speaks to Christ. This one has an outward motion. And so this is a historical book. It shows the expansion of the church. Remember how in the Old Testament there was that section where the nation of Israel was expanding and so forth. So now you see a mirroring of this in the New Testament. This time you see the church expanding sharing the gospel, uh, preaching the gospel from uh, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uh, other parts of the earth. And so you see that story all through the book of Acts. And so if you want to know the outline to the book of Acts, you look at Acts chapter one, verse eight, and, and you see it all falling into place. And so Acts records the worldwide spreading of the message of Jesus Christ. And then in the seventh section of the Bible, you have the epistles or the letters. So this will be Romans through Jude. And this here is presenting an upward motion. So just like how the, the, the poetical books did in the Old Testament with the Psalms and so forth, how it presented an upward motion. That's what the letters do. The epistles do in the New Testament. Because they interpret what we have in Christ. You see, we know who Jesus was. We know what Jesus did as we look at the Gospels, the four Gospels. But now there's an interpretation of exactly what happened when he died on that cross and when he rose from that grave. And so the epistles or the letters, they do that. They present this upward motions 
For example, the Pauline epistles, which would be the letters written by the Apostle Paul. They they give the interpretation of Christ with some applications. And then you have some letters that were not written by Paul. Those are called the non-Pauline letters. They also give the application with some interpretation of Christ. And so that will be the seventh section overall in the Bible that contributes or adds to the overall message of Jesus Christ. But then there's the final section of the Bible, the apocalyptic, the end time section of the New Testament and of the whole Bible called Revelation. And just like how you have that section of the prophetic books in the Old Testament that had a forward motion, the, the New Testament ends in that same way. And so it kind of mirrors the Old Testament. And so this one has a forward motion. There's, there's things that are going to happen in the future. You know, there, there's, you know, first parts of Revelation we're in right now. We're still in the church age. So when Jesus had those letters written to the church, to the ch- different churches, that's the church age. We're still in the church age right now. The church age won't end until the rapture happens, till he removes the church from the earth. Then that'll be the end of the church age and he'll turn his attention back to Israel. So. So, yeah, the, the you know, few parts of Revelation, first few parts are right now, church age right now. But then the rest of it is, yes, future. You see, the Bible, it shows that Jesus occupies it shows that he has this, this threefold position. And this, this threefold position that Jesus has is prophet, priest, and king. He's all three rolled up into one. And so here's the question that we're going to answer How are Jesus' threefold positions revealed in the New Testament? Because it's hinted at, prophesied in the Old Testament, but How are these threefold positions revealed in the New Testament? See, first of all, Jesus is revealed in the New Testament as the prophet. You have Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Uh, God was sharing with Moses and Moses shared with the children of Israel. He said, the Lord God, the Lord, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. So it already pointed forward to this prophet. You see, it has a capital P here. And then Luke 24, 19, it says, and he said to them. Now, this is Jesus talking to the two disciples who were on their way to Emmaus after his resurrection. He said, what things? Because, you know, they were trying to tell him about some the things that happened in regard to Jesus that led to his death and so forth. And so Jesus He was kind of playing dumb here. He was like, what things as this resurrected Christ walked with them? And so they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. And so Jesus is presented here in these two verses as prophet, one of his threefold positions that's revealed in the New Testament. And here are some other scriptures here and there are more, but I just wanted to include a couple more. John chapter one, verse 45, it says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son 
of Joseph in John 6, 14. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, truly, this is the prophet who has come into the world. And so, of course, we know that he's much more than the prophet. We, we did those studies about Jesus. We know he's fully God, fully man, and so forth. But as Messiah, this was one of his role. But he's also presented as priest, the second of the threefold positions of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. He's presented as priest. You see a lot of this in the letter written to the Hebrews. And so in Hebrews uh, chapter two, verse 17, it says, therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And so he is a faithful. He's a merciful high priest. He, he came down as a man. He took upon a human body. He experienced what we experienced. He, he had even gone through temptations like we go through temptations, except he never failed. He never sinned, not once. And we have in 1 Timothy 2.5, another scripture in regard to Jesus being the priest. It says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And so in order to be able to be qualified to serve as that one mediator, to serve as priest once and for all between God and man, he had to be divine, divine, I'm sorry, he had to be divine. In other words, he had to be God fully God in order to represent God to man. But then he also had to be fully human in order to represent man to God. And so therefore he is the perfect mediator. He's the perfect go-between. In other words, he's the perfect bridge builder between God and man. He represented God to the people and represented people to God. So once again, he's presented in this other role, the second role as priest. But then he's also in the New Testament presented as king. For example, the book of Revelation, he's the king of his people. In Revelation 19, you see the second coming of Christ. This is not the rapture. Here you see him coming back and he has his army of saints with him. The angels, of course, are going to be with him. But in Revelation 19, 12, it says his eyes were like a flame of fire and his head and on his head were many crowns. Now, these crowns are uh, diadems. These are royalty crowns. He, he is the supreme ruler. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. And so skipping forward to verse 16, and he had on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so we've seen already just just how these threefold positions of Christ have been revealed to us in the New Testament. Once again, he is prophet, he is priest, and he is king. And so when we talk about Jesus, we, we want to talk about his views. How did he view the scriptures? Because the name of this study is Jesus and the written word, right? So we're seeing how everything connects between Jesus and the written word. But how did he view 
the scriptures. Well, in John 5:39, now this is Jesus speaking to the Jews who wanted to kill him. He said, you search the scriptures or you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. And so you think that just because you're a Jew and you and you have the scrolls, you have the the the, the Old Testament or the, the scriptures, that that's enough. For you to have eternal life just because you have it or you might know it, because there's a lot of people who uh, will say the right things. They, they will honor him with their lips. But then the scriptures say that their hearts were far from him. And so you, you search the scriptures that for in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they which testify of me. And so you were against me. But if you really paid attention to the scriptures, they're about me. I, I'm your Messiah. And so that's what you're getting from John 5 verse 39. So and then we look at Hebrews 10, 7. Now, this is Jesus talking, by the way. He says, then I said, behold, I have come. He says, in the volume of the book, in the volume of the scriptures, it is written of me to do your will. Oh, God, speaking to the fathers. And so the the, the first thing we see here is that um, we see that Jesus viewed the scriptures as being about him. He saw that they were about him. But then we look at Matthew 517. He says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And so the law and the prophets, it referred to all the books of the Hebrew Bible, the law and the prophets. So he didn't come to destroy them. He came to fulfill and so this is how Jesus, once again, saw the scriptures. There was a, they were about him. And number two, he came to fulfill the scriptures. You see, Jesus fulfilled the whole law. How? Because he kept the whole law. And then he fulfills prophecy because he fulfilled at least 300 of them already. And he will fulfill more in the future. But then also you have Luke 24, verse 27. It says, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them. He explained to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they're about him. He is the fulfiller of the scriptures. And by the way, Moses and the prophets is the same as saying the law and the prophets. Talking about the whole Old Testament. And then you go to Luke 24, 44. It says, then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, speaking to his disciples, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And so you see that three division of the Old Testament there, the law of Moses, the prophets and Psalms. The Psalms can also be referred to the writings. So he knew that they were about him, that, that, that he's the fulfiller of the word of God. And so he also, when it came to his views about the scriptures, about the, the, the written word of God, he actually taught that the Bible is the word of God. 
he taught that it was the word of God. And so if he said that it's the word of God, then the Bible is the word of God. Because we already established that Jesus is God who came in human flesh. He has two natures now. He'll forever have two natures. See, because whatever taught, whatever was taught by Jesus is true. So if he says this is the word, then he would know better. So, so it's the word. And so in regard to the Old Testament, Jesus affirmed the divine inspiration of the Old Testament. He, he, he also affirmed that it's reliable. He affirmed the finality of the scriptures. For example, when he was tempted, um, he would respond with the words, it is written. It is written. That means that, you see, the scriptures are final. It is written. That's how he responded to the temptation. Jesus also affirmed the unity of the scriptures because he affirmed that it's all about him. He also affirmed the historicity of the scriptures, that the Bible, in other words, the scriptures are historically true, that it's accurate. Why do you say that? Well, I say that because he acknowledged Jonah. He, he acknowledged the, even the story that involves Jonah. He acknowledged that Noah is a real person, that Moses is a real person. He mentioned Abraham. He mentioned Isaac. He mentioned Jacob. He mentioned David. And so he affirms the, the, the historical accuracy of the scriptures. He also affirms that the Bible is true. The scriptures are true. John 17, 17, as he's praying to the father. He says, sanctify them by your truth. And what does he say after that? Your word is truth. And so he acknowledges that the scriptures are true. He acknowledges that the, the scriptures are indestructible. You can't destroy the scriptures. In fact, in, in John chapter 10, verse 35, he says that the scripture cannot be broken. We found that time and time again. As many people have tried to destroy the Bible, they're still trying to do it today. It still stands. It, it, it cannot be broken. In fact, he even affirmed the scientific accuracy of the Bible. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 2 through 5, he, he affirmed the biology of the Bible is correct because he acknowledged that when God made humans, he made them male and female. And not only did God confirm the Old Testament, he also promised the New Testament. He, he promised to guide the apostles into all truth by the Holy Spirit because he said that the Holy Spirit will bring everything that he taught them to their remembrance. So he confirmed the Old Testament and promised the New Testament, which we have today. And so we get to see here how Jesus viewed the scriptures. And at that time, once again, it was mostly the Old Testament because the New Testament wasn't written during that time. But yet and still, he gave us a heads up about the New Testament. Uh, but as we talk about Jesus in the written word, one thing we should see is the parallel between Jesus and the written word. 
In other words, you should see the parallel, the, the comparisons between Jesus, the living word, the Lagos, and the written word. See, Jesus is called the, the living word. He's called the word of God because he is an expression of God. In other words, if you want to see how the father is, you look at Jesus. He's the most clear and most perfect revelation of God, expression of God that we can see. If you want to know how the invisible God is, look at Jesus, who is the expression of the invisible God. And that's what words do. Words express. And so that's why Jesus is called uh, the word of God. He's the living word. And so Jesus being that expression of, of the true and the living God is also comparable to what the written word of God does, the Bible. Because words, literal words, again, they express, they express our thoughts. And so what we're seeing here in the Bible, we are seeing the thoughts of God expressed in written form. Whereas Jesus being the living word of God, he is God expressed in living form. And so the written word and the living word are expressions. And so we see this parallel between living word, written word. But, but what else do we see that they have alike? That the living word and the written word have alike? Well, both the Bible and Jesus, the son of God, have both the human nature and a divine nature. Well, how does the Bible have a divine nature? It has a divine nature because the Bible is inspired by God. So God breathed out his holy word and gave it to men that he set aside to write down what he breathed out, what he wanted written down. And so the Bible has a divine nature, but the Bible also has a human nature because God used man to write down his his word in human language. But then Jesus, and we said this over and over again, we, we can see the comparison here because Jesus, the living word, of course, he has a both of divine nature and a human nature because he's fully God and he's fully man. But then as we continue to look at more parallels, and this is the third thing I want to point out, both the written word and the living word, Jesus Christ, are eternal, It's eternal. Jesus is eternal because he's God. The written word is eternal because it was in the mind of God from eternity. So it always existed. But at a certain point in time, it was written down. Just like at a certain point in time, Jesus received a body. But then point number four. Jesus and the written word are parallel. You see the comparison because they're both holy They're both holy. God's written word is holy. And Jesus, the son of God, being God himself, he is holy. And them both being holy means that they're both pure. For example, Proverbs 30 verse 5 says every word of God is pure and that he speaking of God, he is a shield to those who put their trust in him. If you want protection, you see something from the word of God here. If you want protection. Put your trust 
in Jesus. Put your trust in God. But every word of God is pure. It purifies us. You know, get more of the word in you. You give the Holy Spirit something to work with, to purge out the junk. That, that, that's a part of our flesh, our sin nature. But then in 2 Corinthians 5.21, speaking of the living word, Jesus Christ, he's also pure because it says, for he made him, speaking of the father, the father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. So he made, so father, the father, in other words, gave uh, Jesus to the world to be our sin offering, to die in our place as if he were the guilty party, as if he were a criminal, as if he were a sinner. But yet and still, Jesus didn't know any sin because the living word, just like the written word, is pure. But why did that happen? So that we can become the righteousness of God in him. And that's talking about justification. But then when you compare even more the written word and the living word, Jesus, you see that both are light. Psalm 119 verse 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You know, I just love that verse. Psalm 119 is one of my you know, favorite psalms. And so it's very long, but, you know, you can see 105 verses goes, you know, there's more than that. But it's, you know, it just talks about the word of God in, in various ways. But your word is a lamp to my feet. In other words, your word, God, shows me where I'm standing. So, but not only does your word show me where I'm standing, but your word shows me how I ought to go because it's a light to my path at the same time. But then John 8, 12, speaking of Jesus, it says, then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. He's a light to our path, right? But have the light of life. People without Jesus as their personal Savior and Lord, are, unfortunately, are walking in darkness. They're lost. Bumping around, walking around blindly, spiritually, not knowing where to go. I just pray that they will put their trust in Christ. And then you see number seven here as we look at the parallels, as we continue with that. Both are truth. John 17, 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And so the written word is truth. And then we know John 14, 6, we're very familiar with this verse. Jesus is talking to Thomas. He says, I am the way, the truth, underlying that, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, more parallels between the written word and the living word, Jesus Christ, the Lagos. And then, and then point number eight, both are necessary for our spiritual lives. The written word and Jesus, the living word, are necessary for our spiritual lives. Matthew 4, 4 says, but he answered and said, it is written. This is Jesus talking to the tempter. He's talking to Satan. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
And in John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. So there's so many people in this world who are spiritually hungry. They're spiritually thirsty. They, they, they supplement God with all these different things, or they try to replace God with all these different things, with money, with sex, with drugs, with alcohol, but they continue to hunger. They continue to go through life being unfulfilled. Why? Because they do not have the true bread of life because if they did, it says here that they'll never hunger. You'll have all you need. If you have Jesus, you will be filled. If you have Jesus, you'll have all that you need. We see in talking about all of these comparisons, these parallels between the written word and the living word, Jesus, I do have to note that we do not worship the Bible. The Bible, of course, is a creation that is God's creation. So we don't worship the Bible, but, but Jesus is the creator. We worship him. We worship the one who had the Bible written. We worship the one who inspired the written word. So we worship the God of the Bible. And as believers, we can know the Lord better through his written word. Just to be sure, we can know him better through what he revealed to us about himself. But but I just wonder tonight as I share this, is that your main goal to know the Lord better? Because if that's your goal, then I would suggest that you spend time reading his written word. Because there's some things in life that if you knew God better through the word, if you knew what pleased him, what doesn't please him, if you know what is sin and what is not sin, if you know what is of him and what is not of him, if you know more about who he is, then there are some things you don't even have to pray about because you already know that God wouldn't want that. You wouldn't even have to pray about it because you already know that spending time in the word of God and what he has revealed already. Okay. He's not going to give me that. He doesn't want me to have that. But, but I know that with some prayer requests that some people bring, I already know that's in the will of God. So when people come to me and they say, Hey, I, I need some peace in my life. I thank God for that because that's in his will. He wants you to have peace. If you want to experience joy, I know that's in his will. So I have no problem praying that the Lord will restore your joy. Or if somebody wants to grow spiritually and they come and they say, I need prayer for help in overcoming my flesh. I already know that's in the will of God. Why? Because it's in the written word. And so that's why it's important to get to know the God of the word through his written word. There are even some problems that will be even easier to make it through if we knew more about the God we serve through the scriptures. There's some problems that maybe some of you are facing tonight. There's some issues that have come into your life that that will be just a little 
easier to make it through if only you understood God better. If only you understood his character better. If only you understood those scriptures or remembered those scriptures that talk about his love for you. If only you memorized those scriptures that that talk about his mercy, his compassion. If only you knew those scriptures that talk about the God who is so gracious to us. If you only you knew those scriptures that talked about God providing our every need because there's some people who are maybe struggling because they feel like some needs are not being met. But if you would just spend time in the written word, getting to know your God better, then you would come to know that he is Jehovah Jireh or or Yahweh Yireh, the God who provides. You would get to know him as Yahweh Rapha, the God who heals. If only you knew the God of the scriptures better. But there's some people, and I at this time asked the worship team to come up. There may be some people, because I was just mostly talking to believers right there. But there's some people who maybe don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. And maybe you would like to know the one that we are to worship through Jesus Christ. And, and you don't have a personal relationship with them yet, but you can. And you can start by repenting. This change of mind, this turn, this turn from sin and put your trust in Jesus and not just trust him for salvation, but trust him on a daily basis. Scriptures say that we walk by faith, not by sight. So we may not have the sight of what's going to happen, but God does. He already knows what tomorrow looks like. Amen. So so get to know the God of the scriptures, of the written word. And then that'll help you in your walk. That'll help you in your prayer requests. That'll help you as you go through your your trials. So with that being said, just want to remind everyone that you're not doing it, but continue to stay in the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for whatever understanding you have given to us. And we pray, Lord, for for us to know you better by experience. We do pray, Lord, for anyone who may be under the sound of my voice in the room or online or maybe listening to this at a later time. We pray, Lord, if they don't have a personal relationship with you. I pray, Lord, that you would remove those spiritual blinders, Lord. I I pray, Lord, that if they feel that tug of the spirit right now, Lord, that you would keep the enemy at bay from trying to steal the seed of the word that has been planted. And I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Under the sound of my voice, Lord, that you would just stir their hearts for the things that are of you. Give them more of a hunger for your word. Give them more of a boldness when proclaiming your word, speaking the truth in love, of course, Lord. But I pray, Lord, that more and more Christians would would see that, that we have nothing to be ashamed about. That if they're mad at us for sharing the Bible, 
then they're really mad at you. So, Father, I pray your blessings. I pray for your healings upon my brothers and sisters tonight, Lord, because maybe there's someone who needs physical healing or maybe there's some who being tortured mentally, spiritually, emotionally, Lord. They just feel weighed down, Father. I pray for healing for them, Lord. I pray for that burden to be lifted from them. May they be reminded of how much you love them, Lord, in a world that seems so loveless. Help us, Lord, to Let our light shine in this world. And Lord, we just want to, while we're gathered right now, Lord, just lift up those families, Lord, Tennessee, whose loved ones have been ruthlessly killed, Lord, murdered. I just pray for your comfort for those families and that somehow, some way, you even use this to draw more people to Jesus. And we know, Lord, although this may seem like a little issue that the enemy may have won, may you remind your people, Father, that you are undefeated. And we know the end of the story. It's recorded. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.